I think the key, both for management or any employees when you're in this, hey, we're still learning mode, is just hiring people who are inherently curious. A lot of times SMB companies or even B2B don't think about brand, but brand done well is a huge differentiator and people want to be affiliated with great brands. I think people undervalue, again, in the early days, the benefit of meeting with your customers in person. Also, it's the quickest way to end internal debates about what should be built or not built or what's the strategy when everyone's actually listening to customers talk about their pain points. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Today's episode with the always insightful Anne Ramondi was recorded live at GGV's SMB Tech Summit. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Super excited to have Anne with us today. Anne and I first met at Zendesk. I think you joined about 2013. That's right. And Anne joined as SVP of Ops at Zendesk. And the company grew, I think, from about 300 employees to about 2,000 or so under your and uh, under 20 your plus watch. locations. 20 <laughs> plus locations. So Anne has lived growth and particularly focused on SMB. So it's great to have her here. Earlier in her career, she had stints at other SMB-focused companies like SurveyMonkey and TaskRabbit. So those should be interesting to talk about as well. And Anne is currently the chief customer officer at Guru and has sat on boards of other important SMB companies, currently on the Asana board, was on the SendGrid board up through the acquisition by Twilio. So seen a lot there. And and Anne's also an active investor. So for those of you, uh, many of the folks in the room are entrepreneurs, series seed and A. And so uh, Anne's always interested in talking to entrepreneurs about their companies. Please join me in uh, thanking Anne for being here. Happy to be here. So, Anne, first question I wanted to ask, given your experience and that this is an SMB-focused conversation, you know, it's just really critical if you're building a company that's going after the SMB that you align your functions within the organization. Sales, marketing, support, product, everything has to be tightly aligned for things to work well. What have you seen in your experience as sort of tricks of the trade to make sure that happens? Yeah, depending on the size of the company and team, I'm a big believer in staying in cross-functional pods as long as you can and not trying to get into functions too fast. I've seen a lot of companies feel like, okay, you know, we raised a large round, it's time to grow the team, and now I'm going to build out all the functions. But not all functions should be built out or should mature at the same rate when you're early and trying to figure out if, if you've got product market fit, but you're trying to figure out, well, how do I scale it now to the next level? Some teams and functions are more set up to be iterative and some it's harder to iterate in quickly. To be super specific, if you're selling to SMBs and you've got a self-serve model, but you're still really experimenting with a sales motion, Hiring a lot of salespeople who are paid on quota 
and expecting them to experiment is a sure way to fail and make a lot of people really unhappy. And so thinking about, I've seen companies who then in the early days of sales at Zendesk, Mm -hmm. it really wasn't sales in the traditional, okay, it's a commission-driven model. It was people in our support team who were comfortable taking the order kind of moving into a hybrid sales role. So instead of just support, they did product consultation and then they would follow up and then they would ask for the order. And that was what sales looked like. And that was a much more natural way to grow the functions than Mm. I'm just going to build each one and they're all going to mature at the same rate. Mm. So how do you build a management team that can manage cross-functional like that? And in particular with sales, I, I remember those days at Zendesk when people weren't necessarily on quota And there was always this lingering question like, well, would we have the same sales if we didn't have salespeople? And so how do you manage in that kind of ambiguity if things are working well, but it's unclear kind of who's adding value to the machine? Yeah, I think the key both for management or any employees when you're in this, hey, we're still learning mode is just hiring people who are inherently curious don't necessarily come in with a playbook or a right answer. It can be really tempting, I think, to look around and say, like, that's a successful company if we hire somebody from there who built up a sales team. And I don't mean to pick on sales. We can any fill in the blank, a marketing team. They're going to come in and they're going to replicate that success. That happens sometimes, but I've seen that happen less than if you hire someone who, one, is passionate about what you're building and already maybe a customer. Some of our best employees early on at Zendesk were customers and were super passionate about the product, gave us tons of feedback. And we were like, you should actually work here because you have such great ideas. So I think finding those kind of evangelists that are out there already for what you're doing, I think in the early days pays off so much more than hiring or and trying to hire sort of experienced people who are going to come in and just build it. Okay. You know, lo- lots of folks in the room are building their teams out and they're focused on SMB. There aren't that many companies that have yet built successful track records in the, the SMB space. You've been parts of lots of companies who've had to bring in execs, some of whom have come from more traditional enterprise companies. Do those people tend to work okay and adapt to an SMB focus or are there traits you, you should look for? You mentioned curiosity and willingness to learn, but what, what else can go wrong and what can go right when you're hiring more traditional yeah, folks? I, I think a lot of it, again, depends on your size and stage. I think of it as like every person you add to the team can change your DNA, either for good or for bad. And that is particularly important when you're 10 people or 30 people or even 100 people. And so a few things. If someone has only grown up in an enterprise company, and what I mean by that is they're a company where all the revenue came from, you know, less than 2,000 customers, they're going to have a certain way of seeing the world and operating and assumptions. And that could be a big change to get into a company where your model is going to be, we're going to serve 100,000 customers, right? And it's going to be a low-touch model. Like that's, that's just a very different way of operating. And so it doesn't mean someone can't make the switch, but you have to spend a lot of time understanding whether they want to and if they're curious and they understand or want to understand how the fundamentals of those two businesses are different. I actually think people who, again, if you have a high velocity business, a lot of self-serve, a lot of your attention's on the funnel, people coming out of consumer can actually be really great mm. because that is what they wake up and live and breathe. 
they are going to assume that you're designing a product and a process and a system where very few customers actually speak to you. Mm. doesn't mean there's not human beings behind it, but that they're going to be wired to think about high volume, right? The question is then, again, are they passionate about the particular problem you're solving if they've spent most of their career in consumer? That's a, that's a great insight. So find people who are passionate, but also who are comfortable in kind of very high volume kind of environments, not necessarily getting a lot of feedback, and consumer might be a good place to fish. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about unit economics. Obviously, if you're selling to SMB, you're not going to make a lot of revenue on any one customer. At the same time, many of the companies in this room and those that have been successful driving the, the growth that uh, Tiffany referenced in SMB have generated great word of mouth and been able to gain customers without having to spend a lot of money on doing so. And that only happens when customers are delighted. So you don't make a lot of money per customer, but you have to have really happy customers. And you obviously, you can't spend a lot on getting that to happen. So that creates a challenge in the SMB space. You're a chief customer officer now, and you've seen a lot of great companies in this world. Like what do companies do? What are, what are the hacks to make sure your customers are happy, but that you're not spending a lot of time and energy and resource making that so? I think people undervalue, again, in the early days, the benefit of meeting with your customers in person. The early Zendesk go-to-market strategy was happy hours in major cities. You hear that and you're like, okay, a lot of people immediately are like, oh my God, that's not scalable. Like drinking in every city is probably also not good for health. But the value of it Although was- Although it would be fun. It would be, it was actually- I think maybe too much fun for some of the early employees. The point is like meeting with customers and prospects in person again in the early days. And I would argue throughout your life cycle is super important. And the ability to show people what you're doing and get their feedback. And also, I think the power of understanding what the rest of their life looks like. So for Zendesk, early adopters and customers, they were sometimes the first head of support, if that was even their title. It was the person who was sort of dealing with transitioning from answering emails to like, well, how do we systematize this? Because, you know, we're growing really quickly and we can't catch up with it. Oftentimes, they were the only person in the company doing that job or they were trying to stand up the function. And it was pretty lonely. And so getting to meet other people like them, you know, in a fun setting and network and share best practices, they valued so much. And then they attributed that value to send us bringing them together. And so I think there's nothing to substitute kind of spending actual time with customers and prospects. It's an easy way to bring the rest of your team along too to listen. Also, it's the quickest way to end internal debates about what should be built or not built or what's the strategy when everyone's actually listening to customers talk about their pain points. And you kind of build these relationships. And I would also say events also are a way to showcase your brand. And a lot of times SMB companies or even B2B don't think about brand, but brand done well is a huge differentiator and people want to be affiliated with great brands. You know, that, that goes back to the comment we talked about earlier about the importance of alignment. You get that feedback and it ends debate. Yeah. That's really yet another reason to get together in person with your customer. I love that. Renewal rates, obviously, hugely important in the SMB, important in, every, in any business. 
And uh, I'll make a plug for another GGV portfolio company, Slack. If you go to the Slack website now, they have up their IPO roadshow video. And I highly recommend checking it out. It's 25 minutes long. But in that, they talk a lot about, in fact, Ali Rail, who runs customer support for them, is featured prominently in the video. And she talks about how important every tweet, you know, every interaction that they had with customers, particularly in the early days, to learn about what problems people were having, what they wanted out of the product, and then try to, you know, systematize that and bring it together in some way. How does that, like renewal rates, lifeblood of these businesses, any, anything you could say about what you've seen work well there or when things are going awry, how you try to address those problems? Yeah. Again, depending on your product, I think too often we think of renewals as like, okay, we're 30 days from the expiration of whatever they signed up for. And so now is when we reach out. It's actually not a great time to reach out when like the conversations around, are you going to pay us again? (laughs) We're all really busy. And so you sort of had that deadline. You're like, okay, somebody's got to reach out, especially if they're not paying by credit card anymore. And it's invoicing all that, uh, depending on again, what you've built. I think of it more, again, borrowing a page from consumer. Consumer companies don't think about it as renewal, right? They think about it as kind of customer retention and relationship building and when to reach out when it's relevant to your customer. So if you're on an annual contract, again, to get specific, instead of like, okay, 30 days before it's due to renew, we're going to reach out. What are the touch points, you know, three months before or six months before Again, it doesn't have to be heavy-duty customer success. It could be messages. It could be introduction to new products. It could be a health check on how they're using your product. A lot of these can be automated. But if you're building a relationship, then it's less the, oh, someone's only reaching out to me when it's time to pay versus like they're reaching out all the time to make sure I'm having a great experience. So I think that's one key to thinking about Instead of renewal being this thing in time as an ongoing, like, are you building a relationship with your customer so that they can be an evangelist for you? You know, sometimes it's their job at stake if something's working or not working. Mm -hmm. Sometimes for them, it's their political capital within their organization. Or if they're an entrepreneur, it's whether their business is surviving or not. And so you have to think about it from their perspective. So I'm reminded of the Zendesk slogan, relationships are complicated. It sounds like relationships are complicated and they're also super important. Growing accounts, also a big and important part of the lifeblood for SMBs. And different companies have different strategies once they land in growing. Some will focus on you know, having a pricing system that allows when there's more consumption, there's growth in the account. Other companies that seem to do this well kind of release or acquire adjacent products and bring those to market with their customers. What have you seen work well if you're attempting to grow the account? Obviously, you have to have a happy customer who wants to renew, but any other sort of techniques you've seen that work well when you're trying to grow accounts? Yeah, definitely. Part of it, again, is who your main user is. I think of it as like two types of expansion within organizations, especially fast-growing organizations. And Asana is a great example of this, right? So there's one type of expansion really, which is, hey, a subset of a team has adopted Asana. So a team within a larger marketing organization, let's call it product marketing, has decided this is a big enough pain point. We can't manage just through Google Docs or spreadsheets anymore. And they've adopted Asana, self-serve. Someone's passionate about it, gets it set up. So we think of that expansion as there are then 
call it another hundred employees within marketing who this account could expand to. And that's a different kind of expansion motion because it's really natural for product marketing to work with other marketers within. So a lot of it is, does the product help you make it really easy to invite other people to work with you and expand? Is your pricing conducive to that? Is it really easy to like invite someone and introduce them to the product without the friction point of, oh, I got to run up the chain and get approval for another seat to be paid? The other kind of expansion for Asana is, okay, the marketing team is only 10 people in this company. It's a 100-person company, and there's only 10 people. So then getting a colleague on a different team, like, do they even talk about what they're using to manage their work? Is there a natural touch point? Who does marketing work with um, most naturally? And that's a different kind of motion. So understanding, like, what's your potential for expansion? And then back to... How does your customer use your product? And are you giving them really easy ways to show it to other people if they're happy? And for renewal and for expansion, who should own those within a company that's going after SMB? Is it sales? Is it support? Is it customer success? Are there blends? What have you seen that works well there? Yeah, I don't know if there's any right answer or um, sort of perfect model to do it. Again, I think it depends on... What product you're selling, how complex it is, how many decision makers are involved in it, and if there's sort of a natural touch point to introduce someone else, right? Again, like if you just have a very light touch model and the salesperson has, um, or even the account manager has, call it like infrequent, but, you know, high volume and they're, they're just doing kind of touch points, trying to then introduce someone else into the equation, right? Put yourself in the shoes of your customer. Like if they are interacting with you, mostly self-serve on occasion, they know one person in the company who's sort of their point of contact, trying to introduce another person into that relationship to take your renewal order it just feels unnatural. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, is this the person who do I go to? You know, part of it is like, make it as easy as possible. I mean, the best case scenario is, you know, things are just automated. And then if they want to do something different, it's really easy to change their package, upgrade, learn what's new, kind of on their own time. Got it. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your customer and customer segmentation. You know, in startup world, it's a very difficult thing to try to really understand who your customers are and then who the personas are at your customer. How have you seen that done well at the companies you've been involved with? Do you think it's important? And when it's done well, what kind of benefits do you get from segmenting the customers? Yeah, I think it's super important to deeply understand your customer, even if you have 100, you know, or you're going to have 100,000 of them. And so a model I really like that people are probably familiar with is jobs to be done instead of just customer segmentation. Customer segmentation tends to be like labels that we put on customers and then we're bucketing them like based on employee size or the industry that they're in. But oftentimes, customers don't think of themselves that way. And they certainly don't think of, we were talking about this earlier, like most SMBs don't wake up in the morning and are like, I'm an SMB. You know, they're like, I'm an entrepreneur trying to stay alive. And so I like the jobs to be done model because for those who aren't familiar, it's really thinking about like, what are you being hired to do? Like when your customer wakes up in the morning, what are their pain points and why are they bringing you into their life? What problem are you solving for them and how do they think about that problem? Is it a mission critical problem? When I was at eBay in the early days working with sellers, 
it was a mission critical problem for the sellers, but not for our buyers, right? Our sellers, like we were their virtual store. So when we changed things, they literally would tell us like, you moved my shelves, you know, and you moved the entryway to my store. And then sometimes they would say, you actually moved my store a couple blocks away and people can't find me anymore. So thinking about like where you sit in their life and how mission critical it is. And then thinking about, okay, within your customer base, because you're going to grow it to 100,000 or a million. Within there, what are the differences in the different kinds of jobs you're being hired to do, as well as are there different dynamics in decision-making? So some of your customers, they may be able to buy without any other approval because it's within a certain amount of budget. Other customers, as their organizations get more complex, there's probably likely a few other people that are involved in the decision-making. We also talked about the buyer themselves. Mm If they are in support or HR, I talked to a lot of people who are interested in selling to HR because that was one of the teams I manage. And it's such an important one because talent and people is critical, but they are a cost center. So understanding, you know, if you're selling into a cost center versus a revenue generating function and how that's different. That makes a lot of sense. What about Net Promoter Score, NPS? Lots of companies use it. Lots of the companies you've been involved with have used it. Is it a useful tool? How is it used well? And when it goes awry, what kind of problems do you need to avoid? Uh, I definitely think NPS is really helpful. One is just a model people understand and people are used to answering that question. But I would say the best part of MPS to me is actually the freeform responses because otherwise it's just a number. If you also don't analyze it based on is it your new customers, your tenure matters, how much they're spending with you matters, so slicing and dicing it. But we got the most out of just reading the free form responses to the NPS score. So if they were a promoter, why? If they were a detractor, why? And then you can actually act on it. Makes sense. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the inevitable move that a lot of SMBs want to make up market. It's a difficult trek for a lot of companies, and sometimes companies fail. We've seen that happen, and it, it's wonderful when it works, when you can actually start to serve uh, both SMB and enterprise, but very difficult to make happen. How do you, you know, when you're advising companies or the companies you've been at, is the move typically a deliberate one to move up market? And if so, what do you look for? When do you know you're ready? And if it's not deliberate, if it's just sort of happening, how do you make sure you don't mess it up? I think of it as, is it natural or unnatural to move up market? And what I mean by that is we had a lot of high growth customers at Zendesk that became enterprise customers and they behaved like startup customers. So we could track back all the way to the credit card that someone paid from Uber Cab to buy two seats. And so we had a segment of enterprise customers that really were just these high growth unusual. And then we had to build out actual go-to-market motions to move to mid-market and to move to enterprise especially because customers that were had to switch, right? So to me, the difference is like, are they growing with you? And that's just part of the dynamics of who you're serving. Or are you having to actually replace what they're doing? Are their requirements different? And is your organization ready to serve that versus does it sort of feel natural? And part of it is sort of getting ahead of the growth. We have time to take one question from the audience. Tiffany says, just one. Yeah. Jason. 
one of the things you mentioned early on is early in the company, spending time with the customer, drinking or whatever your your pleasure. Um, you and, can go volunteering. It doesn't have to be right. drinking. And the idea of building empathy and understanding for them is is super important. One of the things I've seen that's as the company grows, that's really powerful, but also really, really challenging is as you add more people, how you maintain an understanding of the customer as a human for your employees, both to understand them outside of being a an entry in salesforce.com or a, or a label in, in Excel. And then also just the feeling um, as an employee of understanding who is a person you're helping and from a motivation perspective. So I'm curious what you've seen as the companies you've been with have grown, how you maintain that connection yeah. and understanding. Yeah, that's such a good question. We had a, Glenn will remember, we had an early executive at Zendesk at who used to say famously, like as a company grows, all the attention turns inward and then you're showing your customer your backside. So his language was a little you know, rougher than that, but I'll be polite. Something really scalable that I've seen done and can become a habit is, especially using technology, is Zoom conversations and just record them with customers or prospects and share them. And that is like, you can still have someone in charge of it. Maybe it's in your product team or research or a designer or even engineers as they're testing something. But if everyone kind of gets in the habit of getting permission and then just sort of recording customers' feedback and then having a way to share that, I think that's just a great way, you know, again, to you can bring it easily into a decision and, hey, here's the last three customers customers we talk to and you can hear, you know, what their experiences are. Great. Well, and this has been an awesome opening session to the SMB thank Tech you. Summit. Uh, everybody, thank so you. Join me in thanking Ann. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>